But you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 27. Deuteronomy 27. Amen to the curse. We'll read the entire chapter of Deuteronomy 27 and begin reading at verse 1. Now Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. And it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up for yourselves large stones and whitewash them with lime. You shall write on them all the words of this law when you've crossed over, that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. Therefore, it shall be when you've crossed over the Jordan that on Mount Ebal, you shall set up these stones, which I command you today. You shall whitewash them with lime. Now you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool on them. You shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offering on it to the Lord your God. You shall offer peace offerings and you shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. You shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. Then Moses and the priests, the Levites, spoke to all Israel, saying, Take heed and listen, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God and observe his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. And Moses commanded the people on the same day, saying, He shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people when you have crossed over the Jordan. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And he shall stand on Mount Ebal to curse. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levite shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and set it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed is the one who treats his father or his mother with contempt, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who makes the blind to wander off the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who perverts the justice due to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife, because he has uncovered his father's, father's bed. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with any kind of animal. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father, or the daughter of his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his mother-in-law. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who taxes his neighbor secretly. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person. All the people shall say, Amen. And cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. Amen. Uh, well, we come to a new section in the book of Deuteronomy. We've finished the largest section, which is the stipulations. Began at chapter, the end of chapter 4 and went all the way to chapter 26. Remember, the book of uh, Deuteronomy is structured like a covenant. We see the preamble in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, the parties of the covenant. We see the historical prologue, the history between those parties uh, in chapter 1 to chapter 5, into chapter 4. Then we see the stipulations, chapter 4 into chapter 4 to chapter 26. And then tonight we start the sanctions, the blessings and curses, chapter 27 through 30. And remember, Deuteronomy is, is for the people of Israel, primarily beginning with that second generation. And it will be for subsequent generations as well. It's all about theocratic life in the land. It's all about the covenant God had made with the people of Israel. Uh, if they kept the law, if they did what was found written in the book of the law, then they would receive blessings. If they did not, curses would come upon them. And so we start the curse blessings and curses this evening, mainly focusing on curses in verses 11 through twenty. Six And so the main thing, too, when it came to the stipulations was loyalty to Yahweh, full commitment to who he is, full commitment to honoring him in all 
of lights. They must worship and honor God, and their worship must be at the place he chooses according to the ways in which he chooses. But also we see their loyalty to Yahweh expressed in how they cared for one another, which we see the fleshing out of that uh, in these stipulations. You know, a lot of them relating to the Ten Commandments, how they function for Israel as a body politic, for Israel as a society. So the problem that emerges is if Israel does not follow what God says, they're going to receive curses for their failures. They're going to receive bad things that come upon them for the wicked things that they engage in. In a lot of ways, chapter 27 is almost like a signature, or it will be kind of like a signature when they enter into the land of Canaan and receive that promised land. And a lot of what we see here anticipates covenant renewals that shall happen for the old covenant people. The people are going to sin, they need to be renewed, or perhaps they just need a covenant renewal as a reminder for the people uh, when they enter into that land. Because if they don't remember, if they forget, then bad things are going to happen for the people of Israel. And perhaps one problem too that emerges with those curses is the theme of covert sins. Sins that people might think they do in secret, sins that people might think they get away with, God sees all of those things. And if they violate even the secret things, they too, Israel can fall under a curse. And all the people will affirm that when they all say amen. So in Deuteronomy 27, we see the sign of the requirements and curses that Israel agrees to observe and receive. We see signs that will be reminders for them of both the requirements and the blessings and curses when they enter into the land. They're going to have giant signs that they should not forget. It should be very clear what they must do when they enter into the land and what they must, and good, uh, helpful reminders for them when they enter into the land. Now, how do we uh, put 27 and 28 together when we consider uh, 28 talks about curses and 27 talks about curses? Well, perhaps the difference is in 27, Israel agrees to undertake their part of it. They agree, we'll keep the commandments, and if we, uh, uh, if we don't do what is said in those, uh, uh, in those commandments, cursed is everyone. So they're uh, saying, uh, we agree, and we will receive that curse if we don't do what is said in the commandments. Chapter 28 is what God will do. If God does not undertake, or if Israel doesn't do what they're supposed to do, God will fulfill the terms of the covenant. He will either bless them, or he will curse them. And so, and as well, the 27 is going to be uh, uh, this renew it, renewal at Shechem when they get into the land. Uh, and 28, you see further uh, what, it, uh, what the, the blessings and curses will look like uh, when they enter into the land, but it'll still be at Moab in 28. But the main thing is 27 was, is what Israel must do. And so we'll look at this under two headings this evening. First of all, the stones of the covenant for Israel, verses 1 through 10. These stones shall act as a sign for them. The stones of the covenant for Israel, verses 1 through 10. And secondly, the mountains of the covenant for Israel, verses 11 through 26. The mountains shall act as a sign for them when they enter into the land. So the stones of the covenant and then the mountains of the covenant. Let's first look at the stones of the covenant in verses 1 through 10. And notice we see the law is going to be written in stone. And notice the permanence of the law. Even though Moses is going to die, even though Moses is not going to enter into that land, he's, we're going to see his death in Deuteronomy chapter 34. The people still must continue and keep that law regardless of whether Moses is alive or not. So you see now Moses with the elders of Israel. So the elders are going to continue Certainly Joshua is going to be the successor, uh, and there'll be many successors after that, and they are to continue to do what God has said. They're continue to do what is written in these laws. And so even though Moses is going to go the way we all must go, Israel must not forget. And so a lot of what we see in verses 1 through 10, and really the whole chapter, is the anticipation, as I said, of covenant renewals. Uh, there, were, there was a covenant renewal in Exodus 34 after the people, the first generation, uh, worshipped the golden calf. Uh, we'll see covenant renewal at Moab in Deuteronomy 29. 
there's going to be a covenant renewal at Shechem in Joshua 24. Uh, but we, what we see in chapter 27, verses 1 through 10, uh, will be fulfilled in the book of Joshua in Joshua 8. And so whether Moses is alive or not, they must still keep the law. And so notice, uh, it says that very there, uh, it says that there in verse 1. Command the people saying, keep all the commandments which I command you today. And all the commandments include all that we have just looked at uh, in Deuteronomy 5 through 26. And notice the ceremony. Notice what they shall do when they enter into the land. And it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you. There's going to be a lot of reminders about the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even where they perform this, this, or this, this event, where they perform this oath-taking at Gerizim and Ebal, it's going to be at Shechem. And Shechem is an important place uh, for the patriarchs. So I'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, but when they enter in, it's a reminder. God has given them, given them the land. They've entered into it. Now they must retain that land based upon uh, uh, um, uh, covenant keeping. And so here's a good reminder for that. When you enter into that land, you shall set up for yourselves large stones and whitewash them with lime. This was an Egyptian practice versus a Mesopotamian practice. Mesopotamian, they would use iron tools and carve it out. Uh, what in a, the Egyptian practice was, they would paint it white and then you'd write, so it's easier to write something in a, in a dark font, so to speak, and to be able to see what is written. And so the law must be written and it will be a sign for the people, be a reminder for the people. This is your law. This is what you agree to. This is what you must keep so that nobody uh, is unsure of what they must do. God is very clear in his word. There are some things that are hard to understand, but the basic things of God's word are pretty clear. And the basic things of the covenant are pretty clear as well. And so they shall set up these stones. Verse three, you shall write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Again, God is giving it, God is giving it a land flowing with milk and honey. Now we saw that phrase last time and it comes from another Old Testament passage. Does anybody remember where that was? A land flowing with milk and honey. When did Yahweh say that? Burning bush, Exodus chapter 3. God said it to Moses in the burning bush. And so much like we saw in chapter 26, our attention is drawn back to God's promise to Moses in Exodus 3. And Exodus and uh, Deuteronomy, specifically these sections, specifically the giving of the law at Sinai, there is some parallels. Uh, hopefully we shall see them. And so God has promised to keep his covenant he has kept that covenant. The people have entered or will enter into that land. They're about to do that. And when they do so, they must remember that the God gave them the land, but also here's the law that God has given us to be able to retain the land. And so he says in verse four, therefore it shall be when you've crossed over the Jordan on Mount Ebal, you shall set up these stones, which I have commanded you, and you shall whitewash them with lime. Mount Ebal will be the side where the curses are. It's actually on the northern side uh, of where the place shall be. Uh, and uh, what they're, what they're going to, uh, it shall be on the, uh, the, again, that cursed side of them. And there is some connection with what has been said already in Deuteronomy 11. Deuteronomy 11, we see the foreshadowing of this. Um, he says in 1129, now it shall be when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Now, in between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal is the place is the is the place known as Shechem. Now, when the people enter into this land, when they enter into Shechem, they're going to build an altar there to worship the Lord God. When they enter into that land, it's going to take some time. They're going to engage in conquest. But when they get to this place, they must remember. They must remember what God has done. And at this place, they must remember what they must do. Uh, otherwise, blessings and curses will fall upon them. But Shechem is an important place for the patriarchs. Where did Abraham or God first appear to Abraham when he entered into the land? Shechem in Genesis chapter 
12. And what does Abraham do? As soon as God appears to him, he builds an altar. And as well, later on, uh, Shechem becomes an important place for uh, other patriarchs as well. Uh, 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 we see Jacob live near Shechem in Genesis 33. Now, bad stuff happens in Shechem in Genesis 34. But Shechem is an important place when it comes to the promises of God. And even in Deuteronomy 11, uh, our attention is drawn back to the place where uh, um, Abraham lived. Uh, verse 30. Are they not on the other side of the Jordan toward the setting sun in the land of the Canaanites who dwell in the plain opposite Gilgal beside the terebinth trees of Moray? In Genesis 13, where does Abraham dwell? By the terebinth tree of Moray. And so God has fulfilled his promises to the patriarchs. And when the people enter into that land, they shall worship and build an altar at this one-time event uh, at the place where God had met and appeared to Abraham. And so they shall build an altar, verse 5, to the, uh, to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool uh, on them. You shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God. You shall offer burnt offering on it to the Lord your God. You shall offer peace offerings and shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. Now, the burnt offering reference here probably has to do with one's vertical relationship with the Lord God Most High, uh, an honoring of God, a praising God, a sacrifice to God. The peace offering certainly is an offering to God, but also it is one that is shared with the brethren. It's one in which they can share in a meal together. So there's a vertical relationship going on and a horizontal emphasis as well. That was meant to be a great time of rejoicing. God had fulfilled his promises. The people have entered into the land. And it ought to be a great time of worship to God most high. Now, again, there is some connection here between the, the, what we see with the second generation, what they must do, and also the first generation at Sinai. The language of burnt offering and peace offering isn't found together very often, but it is found in Exodus chapter 20, where God, they are called to build an altar to the Lord. And they are meant to offer peace offering or a burnt offering and peace offering. And also as well when it comes to the covenant uh, ratification in Exodus chapter 24. So the point is God has brought the people from Sinai to Moab. From Sinai to the land of promise. And remember that first generation could have had it. They could have entered in. And throughout the first part of Deuteronomy, God is saying to that second generation, don't be like that first generation. Don't be so fearful. Don't look at those giants and freak out. But God is with you. God will be with you when you enter into that land. And thankfully, the second generation enters into that land, and they're able to take out uh, the Canaanites. Certainly, there's still problems in Joshua, but uh, for the most part, Joshua is a fairly positive book as the second generation enters in. So God has brought them to this place. God appeared to them at Sinai. God will be with them when they enter in as well. God's promises are sure. And so they must worship they must praise, they must rejoice, and it is a blessing because God is pleased to bless them based on his promises in this way. And then notice in verse 8, you shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. The laws must be clear and legible so that nobody can say, I had no idea what was going on. That's the wonderful thing about God's word. For the most part, it is pretty clear when it comes to the big things, isn't it? And even, too, when it comes to what Israel was supposed to do as a people, I know we've just gone through them. I know there are some laws we don't fully grasp or understand, but for the most part, everybody could understand what they must do. Wright says an important feature of the Old Testament law is that it assumed to be available to all, intelligible to all, and observable by all. And so the people knew what they must do. And the people all say, yeah, we got it. We can do this. We'll say amen. The people all say, we understand. We shall do it. We shall keep it. It is clear. It is plain. And it must still be clear and plain. Otherwise, people have a forgetfulness problem, which they do, unfortunately, forget the book of Deuteronomy. But in any case, God tells them it must be clear. It's not because God did not warn them. It's because the people are ignorant, the people are wicked, and the people suppress the truth by forgetting the law of 
God. So the people had to keep the law written in stone in this way. And then in verse 9, we see the people themselves, a lot of covenant renewal type language in verses 9 and 10. Then Moses and the priests, the Levites, spoke to all Israel saying, Take heed, listen, O Israel. And that O Israel should remind us of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Where is that? Deuteronomy 6, 4. Very good. Uh, uh, so that's a, 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 a drawing our attention back to that, the creed of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he says, this day you have become the people of the Lord your God. It's not that they weren't the people of the Lord their God but we see the language of covenant renewal for them, an affirmation for that second generation. You have become that people to enter into the land. And again, there's connections again between the first and the second generation. The first generation received that confirmation in Exodus 19. You are the people. I shall be your God and you shall be my people. The second generation is receiving that confirmation as well. And the people, therefore, verse 10, shall obey the voice of the Lord your God and observe his commandments and his statutes, which I have commanded you. The old covenant is a, as I've highlighted, a conditional covenant. It's a works-based covenant. It's based on life in the land. Israel must do what Yahweh has said, and his commands are very plain and very clear. Now, there is some new covenant application for the redeemed saints in Christ in the new. Thankfully, the law is written on our hearts, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 37. And even though there are some things that are hard to understand in God's word, the basics are pretty plain, aren't they? Who, who we are in Christ, how we've been redeemed in him, but also how we ought to live. So often we're the ones that take those clear commands and we are the ones who try to make it more complicated, right? And that's why in the book of Ecclesiastes, even though I know it's anticipating the old covenant, what does he say? Fear God and keep the commandments. I mean, we like to overcomplicate our life so often, but God's commandments are pretty plain. I mean, Christian living, when it comes to the application sections of the letters, a lot of them are very similar. A lot of them are very uh, are very much the same when it comes to how the people of God are supposed to live in this world. But certainly Galatians 5 and 6 is one I want to highlight today because we're going to look at Galatians 3 later on uh, this evening. But Galatians 5, how ought we to live as God's people? Well, he says, verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. And remember the problem with the Galatian heresy is the Judaizers were saying salvation is based not just on faith, but faith plus works. And what Paul is doing here, he's saying we're not doing away with the law completely. We're doing away with the law as a means of righteousness before God most high. But the law still remains applicable for the people of God. Verse 13, for you brethren have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. How we ought to live before God most high as the redeemed saints is pretty clear when we think of the Ten Commandments. We're just terrible at it. Now, thankfully, there's that reminder that we do see in Galatians 5, walking in the spirit. It's a battle, isn't it? The spirit with the flesh. Our, our Christian life is one of warfare. And when I say one of warfare, it's a battle between the spirit and the flesh. We have remaining corruption. We have remaining sins that we still struggle with. But thankfully, there is that encouragement that we have the Holy Spirit. And we can bear, by God's grace, the fruits of the Spirit in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, again, the commandments are fairly uh, simple when we see what they are, but they're very hard for us to abide by in this world. And they're very hard for us to abide by when people add the traditions of men to it, when people make it more complicated and make it more 
confusing. That's why, again, I love Ecclesiastes. Here's the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's it. That's our life. That's what it's supposed to be. That's what we're supposed to do, regardless of what suffering and what difficulty may come. We must fear God and keep his commandments. Now, we don't always because we're still fallen, but that's why there's mercy and forgiveness in Christ in the new covenant. But how we ought to live to please our Lord is very plain. So that's the stones of the covenant as a sign. Let's then look secondly at the mountains of the covenant for Israel as a sign as well. Verses 11 through 26. Notice we see the mountains of sanctions, verses 11 and 13. The mountains that represent the sanctions. And Moses commanded the people on the same day, saying, These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless. So Mount Gerizim's in the south, Mount Ebal's in the north. In between is Shechem. Gerizim is a sign of blessing. Ebal is a sign of curse. And notice, and again, they do it when they've crossed over the Jordan. And we see perhaps, uh, we see each, uh, each of the 12 tribes separated into two groups. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin are the ones who are blessed. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali are the ones who are cursed. Now, why this division? Well, it could be that the, that the tribes who lived in the south are on Gerizim. That's possible. And the tribes who lived in the north are on Ebal. Or perhaps there is something theological going on. We see the sons of the free woman, the sons of Leah and Rachel in, in, well, with respect to blessing. And then we see the sons of the, 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 the maidservants and Reuben. Uh, and Reuben, and I think Zebulon, I, if I get that right, I might be wrong. I think it's Zebulon. Uh, but uh, Reuben, because he tried to assert his authority by having his, uh, his father's maidservant, Bilhah, he, that was a power play when he did that. He was trying, he's like, Rachel's the beloved, Rachel has died, uh, so I'm going to do this power play. That, that was a curse that was brought upon him. And uh, Zebulon as well. I can't remember the specific reason why. But in any case, they're the ones who are cursed. Or that, or that could be what is going on here. But in any case, Gerizim is blessing. Ebal is cursing. And the purpose of these mountains were giant signs. When you walk through, and perhaps there was a major trade route right through Shechem. You see these two mountains there. It was just a perpetual sign. It's a reminder for the people. I mean, each household was to teach their children the laws. They still had these giant signs as a reminder for them. They had the stones. They had the mountains. I mean. They shouldn't forget, right? They should not forget the law of God. They should not. The land itself was a giant sign of God's goodness. They should not forget his promise to the patriarchs and his fulfillment to bringing them in the land. I mean, the people had every sign available to them. Yet, like us, they're very thick. And we know what shall happen to them. So the, the mountains are function as a sign. And then we go on to see these 12 curses mentioned in verses 14 through 26. So why all of these? To be honest, I have no idea. Uh, but perhaps it's 12 to symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel, to symbolize totality. That could be something uh, that we see there. Another theme that runs through these, um, these curses or these violations that lead to curse uh, curses is secrecy. Things that happen in secret that should be criminally punished, but people think they can get away with it. All of these things have that there. People think God doesn't see. People think God doesn't notice. People think, well, God's not going to see me, you know, you know, sneak this idol in and worship it when nobody's looking. And the reality is allegiance to God must be total. Allegiance to God must be both inward and outward. And so the people are saying, when they engage in this oath-taking, when they say, amen, so let it be. They're saying, we, pro we agree that these curses should be brought upon us for what we do. Now, chapter 27 deals with some of the things for which one would be cursed. 
chapter 28 will look, uh, will spell out what those curses actually look like. So secrecy certainly runs through this. It highlights total allegiance to God most high. It highlights self-maledictory oath. If we don't do what is said, we'll bring these curses upon us. Now, perhaps the blessings are implied. Uh, certainly that is seen in the fulfillment. Uh, but the emphasis seems to be on the curses to cause people to stop and think. Let us not do these things. Otherwise, curse will come upon us. And it highlights, too, the sad reality that even though God has given a good law, there's still sin in Israel, right? And they're still not going to do what the law says. This is why, as an aside, I'm not a theonomist as well. Theonomists want to take these laws and apply it to Israel as in, in a modern sense for a modern society. Now, I'm all for the general equity as something we can learn behind these laws but we must understand we live in Canada. We must understand we live in the United States of America. And one people, one thing I don't know, maybe they do, and I haven't you know, asked anybody, uh, but when it comes to this desire to have this institution of these laws, I don't think everything's going to be hunky-dory. You want to know why? People sin. People do terrible things. People are awful. We do our best oh, you know, with the, the society in which we live, but this isn't going to be a one-size-fits-all st- one you know, savior of society around us. We long for a new heavens and new earth. We long for the kingdom of heaven, not a kingdom of God in a civil society in this present age, because sin is still present in this present age. I'm looking for the new heavens and the new earth. Sin's still a problem. Sin is clearly a problem uh, for the old covenant people. And it's certainly, what makes us think we'd be any better? That's what I want to know. What makes us think we'd be any better than how Israel functioned or did or engaged in dysfunction as a society? The laws are good, but people sin against those laws. And the fulfillment of this is in Joshua 8, verses 30 to 35. After they enter into the land, they've taken out Jericho. They've taken about I. Dale Ralph Davis called it I. I've heard people call it AI, but Dale Ralph Davis is smarter than most people, so I'll call it I. Uh, The fall of I. Um, Sounds very British. Uh, But we see the renewal of that inverse, or the renewal of the covenant, which is what Deuteronomy 27 anticipates in chapter 8, verses 30 through 35. Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord, God of Israel, Mount Ebal. Joshua is great. Love Joshua. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones, which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Then all Israel with their elders and officers and judges stood on either side of the ark before the priests and the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant. So the ark is in the middle. And perhaps too, the, uh, when it comes to what was in the ark, it was probably a copy of the law, right? You know, we talk about the two tables of the law. Again, there are smarter, than, smarter men than me that disagree. But usually we'd sometimes think the first table of the law is the first four commandments and the second table is the latter six, right? But perhaps what was going on is it's two copies. It's two copies of the 10 that are put in there, one for God and one for Israel, almost like a signature. So that, again, the people are very clear. Document clause in a lot of ways, a signing, so to speak. And Israel in Deuteronomy 27 is almost signing when they write it down or the promise to write it down and say amen and say those things. Well, they've come in and they've signed the covenant saying they're going to keep it. It's signed in the ark and it's signed with Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And so the strangers, as well as he who has borne them, half of them were in the front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before, they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. 
There is not a word of all that Moses commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. So we see this fulfilled in Joshua 8. Let's go back to the specific curses that are brought up. Notice, cursings for secret sins against God. Verse 15. In a lot of ways, verse 15 and verse 16 are violating the greatest commandments. Uh, notice verse 14. The Levites shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. People are hiding it. People are think nobody's watching. People think nobody sees, but God sees allegiance must be total. And certainly we know Israel's history with the golden calf. They just like shiny things. And Deuteronomy 4, as a reminder for them, Israel, do not set up golden images. And what does Israel do so often? Set up golden images. And that's what Jeroboam does. He sets up two calves, right? So the people in the north wouldn't go worship in the south, in the place that God would choose for them. That's very clear. That's very conspicuous. But the problem here is inconspicuousness. That is setting it up in secret. So it's a curse for violating the greatest commandment. Certainly it's the second commandment, which piggybacks off the first. No other gods, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image. So you shall honor God. Uh, in secret with no carved images and all the people shall answer and say amen what's interesting too is we usually say amen for positive things right i mean they say amen for negative things i mean how often if i were to get up in the pulpit and say hey we're all going to die amen you know nobody says that right but this is what we see here the curse proclaims and all the people saying amen to these curses and then notice in verse 16, curses are violating the fifth commandment. Now, remember how important the family is for Israel as a nation. Remember how important the family is for society in general uh, to function well. Remember, families are the microcosm of society. And, that's, and, and if, uh, if one does not honor their parents, are they going to honor judges or kings or teachers that's why, you know, parents have a very, very hard task in raising their children. That's why it's very, very difficult. Now, why uh, does it say here, curses the one who treats his father and his mother with contempt? Well, despising them could be something that one does internally, but perhaps there could be a situation with the incorrigible son, in Deut like in Deuteronomy 21. If there is a stubborn, rebellious son, who's been chastened, who's been disciplined, and his father and his mother take hold, shall take hold of him and bring him out to the city. That was what they're supposed to do. But parents love their children, right? So maybe they're not going to do that. Yeah, family, right? The family, we, you know, we love our family. We care for our family. We don't want to hurt our family. You know, blood binds us this way. So maybe people would have been hesitant. And so it must not, it must, all evil must be purged from among them, even the things that were perhaps done in secret. The people might be conflicted. Our son's a terrible wretch. He causes headaches. I don't want to see him stoned. But it had to, it was something that was commanded and had to be done. And all the people shall say, Amen. And then we see in verses 17 through 19. Curses for disregarding the basic needs of life. We see cursed, verse 17, is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark. Now, again, that could be something that is done very secret, in a secretive way. Something that could be just moved shortly, uh, moved in little increments that nobody notices. We see this in Deuteronomy 19, 14, where we're supposed to um, protect the inheritance. You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark which the men of old have set in your inheritance. They have been given an inheritance in the land, and you shall not take that from them, however secretive you might be 
and trying to steal that piece of property in that way. So, and all the people shall say, amen. And then verse 18, curses the one who, who makes the blind to wander off the road. Now, there is some uh, connection with Leviticus 19. A lot of these do have some connection with Leviticus, uh, the book of Leviticus. But Leviticus 19, 14, you shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. You know, society degenerates into chaos when the least of the people are treated poorly. You let the blind wander. You let the deaf stumble. You, you, you treat, you know, you steal candy from a baby. You punch old people. I mean, all those sorts of things are a clear sign of a degenerative society. I mean, wasn't there a game a couple of years ago where people would just walk by and just punch people in the face? Have you heard about that? Do you ever see that? It was like a phenomenon where people just walk by, boom, just, just like that. What a wicked world we live in. I mean, I mean, how anybody thinks that we can build a strong, I mean, you know, God is good and his Noahic covenant. I get all that, his promises, but you know, we're terrible. Like we're awful. So they say, cursed is everyone who makes, cursed is the one who makes the blind to wander off the road. You don't do that. And all the people shall say, amen. And then verse 19, you shall not pervert justice. Curses is the one who perverts the justice to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. That's why we need just judges. Deuteronomy 16 and Deuteronomy 24, 17. He says, you shall not pervert justice due to the stranger. It was to protect the poor from destitution was to protect the poor from being treated like nothing because they didn't have money. They still had a right to a proper trial. And so, again, perverting justice. Someone might receive a bribe in secret and then sway their verdict in a, in, that, might not seem like a, uh, that might seem like a proper way when it is not. So curses the one who perverts the justice due to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. All the people shall say amen. And then verses 20 through 23, curses for sexual immorality. Now, all these things can be done in secret. Sexual immorality can be done in secret. Again, you know when it's a big-time problem in society when it's not done in secret. That, that's a telltale sign of, of, of uh, escalation that is not good. Verse 20, cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife because, because he has uncovered his father's bed uncovered his father's nakedness there's something similar in 22 in chapter 22 it deals with a lot of laws concerning sexual immorality one of them was you shall not take your father's wife this is probably perhaps a polygamous situation so this is not the son's mother this is what's called a law of or a violation of the law of affinity just because someone is not bound in blood the, the law also is uh, uh, in, if someone um, engages in sexual relations with one uh, who is an in-law, it is called, um, or a stepmother in this case, sorry, stepmother in this case, uh, it is uh, called, it is still incest, even though it's not in blood. That will come up later as well with the mother-in-law, laws of affinity. And so uh, you shall not do that. Cursed is the one who does such things because he has uncovered his father's nakedness. What that means is, the son has violated his father's most private life. That's what that means there. And certainly you see, you see that uncomfortable situation in Genesis 9 with Noah and his son. I think it's Ham, right? Uh, that uncomfortable situation there. Yeah, he peered into his father's you know, private life. And we see it even more heinous or uh, even further violation of that when a father or a son has his father's wife. Now, this happens in Corinth. And someone has to be punished and uh, disciplined for that very thing. Thankfully, he repents. I think in 2 Corinthians 2, when they talks about the restoration, it's, that, it's probably that guy. So there's mercy and forgiveness, even for one who has his father's wife. But don't have your father's wife. Uh, uh, cursed is the one who shall have his father's wife. And all the people shall say amen. And then at verse 21, bestiality. 
Cursed is the one who lies with any kind of animal. Now, again, this is also in Leviticus as well. Leviticus chapter 18. And it perhaps was the case in various nations surrounding Israel that people did this. Brethren, people probably do this around the world. I'm sorry to say that, but it's just the fallen world in which we live in. And so one was not to lie with an animal like one lies with their husband or with their, uh, with their spouse. I remember reading in grade seven or had read to us at a Christian school, Greek mythology. And there was an instance of this very thing in that Greek mythology. And I remember being in grade seven going, why are, we, why are we reading this in grade seven and being scarred for life ever since that moment? Uh, but bestiality is a violation, obviously, of the seventh commandment. And can I just say by way of an aside, sometimes people, when they compare the old and the new, like to say, especially when it comes to the Sabbath, they like to say the Sabbath does not abide because it's not repeated in the new. Well, just because a law is not repeated in the new does not mean it's not still in force because bestiality is not repeated in the new. Bestiality is in the old. Now, certainly one could say, well, the seventh commandment is repeated in the new and it falls under fair enough, but is not repeated explicitly in the new. Remember, the law of God is, is, is written on the heart and given at Sinai, but certainly we see in Deuteronomy a fleshing out of a violation of that, of the seventh commandment, and it includes uh, this unsavory subject matter. Now the people shall say amen. And then verse 22, curses the one who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother, whether it's a half-sister or not, it's still incest and still a violation of God's law, a violation of natural law. This is immorality by consanguinity. That's just a big word for saying blood, blood relations. Incest is wrong. And unfortunately, again, incest is out there. Uh, there's this phenomenon. What's happening is fathers, after you know, fathers leave their children, right? And they go away and they're never in their kid's life. And then later on, they reconnect. There's just terrible things that are happening in those types of scenarios. I'm sorry to bring up this gross subject matter, but again, we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world. It's awful, and it's terrible, and it is out there. Uh, but cursed is the one who, who does such a thing. All the people shall say amen. Also in uh, Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18 unpacks a lot of these sexual immorality laws. And then the last one for sexual immorality Curse the one who lies with his mother-in-law. This is another violation of law of, it, of affinity by law. Uh, and all the people shall say, amen. And in verses 24 and 25, curses for uh, engaging in the destruction of life itself. Curses the one who secretly, who taxes neighbor secretly. That's pretty self-explanatory when nobody sees and nobody notices. He does so secretly. And all the people shall say, amen. And then verse 25, conspiracy. Cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person. That's why there wasn't supposed to be any briberies taken. That's why the judges, uh, well, one, I guess the judges were, uh, were not supposed to take a bribe uh, in order that they might give a favorable and proper verdict. Uh, but certainly here we see that some people can take a bribe to be to kill somebody else. That is not supposed to happen. There's no hitman. So there's no, you know, slaying for hire. That's not supposed to be. Otherwise, cursed is that one who does such a thing. All the people shall say amen. Now, we know Israel violates all of this, but Ezekiel 22 highlights this very clearly. Sins of the city. Sins of Jerusalem. Sins of the capital, verses 6 to 12. Look, the princes of Israel, each one has used his power to shed blood in you. You, they have made light of father and mother. In your midst, they have oppressed the stranger. And you, they have mistreated the fatherless and the widow. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. And you are men who slander to cause bloodshed. And you are those who eat on the mountains. In your midst, they commit lewdness. In you, men uncover their father's nakedness. In you, they violate women who are set apart during their impurity. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. 
Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. Another anew violates his sister, his father's daughter. And you, they take bribes to shed blood. You take usury and increase. You have made profit from your neighbors by extortion and have forgotten me, says the Lord. Behold, therefore, I beat my fists at the dishonest profit which you have made, the bloodshed which has been in your midst. Can your heart endure and can your hands remain strong in the days when I shall deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. I will scatter you among the nations, disperse you throughout the countries and remove your filthiness completely from you. You shall defile yourself in the sight of the nations. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. The people thought they could get away with it, but God saw all of it. And God punished them as they said, Amen. If we do these things, let these curses fall upon us. And God is true to his promises. And thankfully, one day all the filthiness we've talked about today will be gone. This fallen evil age will pass away. And the new heavens and new earth shall come in. And all the people shall say, Amen. And verse 26, the last verse. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them. This is that summary commandment. All the commandments. All the words. The first generation agreed to it in Exodus 24. The second generation will will agree to it in Deuteronomy 29. They will agree to it again in in, in Joshua chapter 8. And what happens? They fail. They could not keep all of the law. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them. All the people shall say, Amen. And they fail. Now, thankfully, one blessed thing we can see is how crushing the law is and how plain that is. And the reason that's a blessing is because it also helps us see how clear salvation is in God's word as we understand the law, as we understand the gospel. Now, the law itself is meant to crush, really. As you read it, as you read all the Ten Commandments, as you read all the laws in the Mosaic Covenant, it's meant to weigh one down. Because we cannot keep it. We cannot keep one iota of it. We cannot keep it in secret. God sees all of it. And this is what Paul highlights in Galatians 3. And this is where we'll move to close. Galatians 3. Again, that problem of the Galatian heresy was our contribution to our standing before God. And what Paul is saying, going to say here is the law only brings a curse. He says in verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You want works? You want law keeping, you got to keep all of it. Not just a little bit of it, not just your best efforts. You got to keep all of that law. That's why Paul's very vehement against this Galatian heresy. That's why the reformers were very vehement against any sort of combining and blending justification and sanctification. If one wants to contribute their works to their standing before God, fine. But you have to keep every iota, every jot and tittle. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in them. If one wants to live by the law, you must keep all of that law. But that's why there's the contrast between the law and faith. He says, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. That is faith in someone. Faith in someone who did keep the law in every jot and tittle. Who did keep every iota of it. And he says, verse 12, the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. If one relies upon himself, he's going to be cursed. 
If one wants to contribute to his salvation or think he's contributing to it, he's going to be cursed. In Matthew chapter 7, where those on that, in that day, where they say, Lord, did we not do all these things? And they say, Lord, he says, go away from me. I never knew you. What are they relying on? Did we not do these things? When we stand before God on that judgment day, the reason that we stand before them, the reason we appear before him clothed and righteous is not because of the things we did, but because of Christ and what he has done for us. That is where blessing lies. That is where mercy lies. And that is clear. Again, there's a lot of things hard to understand about the Bible. But one thing is clear. There is sin. You're sinful, and there's a great Savior in Jesus Christ. And that's why he goes on to say, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And he's going to say, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, which goes with Deuteronomy chapter 21. The curses that are found in these laws for the sins one commits, Christ bears upon himself. Christ becomes that curse for us. Christ bears the wrath of God upon himself that we do not. That in him, we have blessing. In him, we have life. In him, through faith, we have assurance of the new life in him. Now, this contrasts, too, uh, with the old covenant. Remember last time in Deuteronomy 26, as he's talking about the, the tithe he brings for that triennial tithe. And remember, it sounds very health, wealth, prosperity. And he's like, God, I have done this. I have given to the fatherless, the Levite, and the widow, and the stranger. Now bless me. And remember last time I said, yes, I said, that is a prayer of faith according to the old covenant. God had said, if you do these things, I will bless you. And so if one prays that prayer based on the old covenant, he's praying the prayer of faith that is trusting the promises of God that are there. But what's so much greater about the new covenant? We don't pray and ask for blessing because of anything we have done. We pray and ask based on the blessings that we have for what Christ has done. That is a key difference. The glory of Christ in the new covenant far outweighs the covenant of condemnation, which is what, what is emphasized in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. For those who want sacrifices, for those who want works, for those who want law-keeping, why exchange the glory of the new? Why exchange the promises found in Christ for things that shall pass away, for things that are old? Brethren, cling to Christ where there is clear salvation where there is clear forgiveness for all of the sins of his people, for all of the sins that you commit, for all the sins that I commit, and all the sins that we commit when nobody's looking. Christ bore those upon himself that we might have life in him. Love the new, glory in the new. Don't go back to the old. Let's pray. Our gracious God, thank you again for the finished work of Christ and for the covenant blessings found in the new. Thank you for the spiritual blessings in him, right standing, adopted as sons, sanctification, perseverance, preservation, and the promise of glorification. And we know this has nothing to do with anything we do, nothing to do for uh, no righteousness of our own, but based on Christ and his finished work. And thank you, O oh God, that when we pray and seek to pray your promises back to you, we do not say anything, uh, uh, we do not speak as though we have done anything, but we speak in a way that magnifies you, and we do it based upon the finished work of our prophet, our priest, and our king. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for his finished work. Thank you for the plainness of your word. Uh, there are hard things to understand, we must confess. But as far as all things that pertain to life and godliness, O oh God, we know that those things are perspicuous. Those things are clear that we read in your scriptures. We ask, O oh God, you'd forgive us for not uh, heeding them. Forgive us for not loving you and loving others. 
Forgive us for not honoring you and living in a, in, a, in a way that is consistent with your word. And thank you, O God, because of Christ, we know that there is forgiveness in him, that you are faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So may this give us comfort and encouragement of the promises of the blessings we have in the new. And we pray, O God, you'd be honored and glorified this night uh, as we go out uh, this night and as we go out uh, into the world the rest of the week. Bless us and keep us, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you.